This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Shara Rambaran. Shara is Assistant Professor of Music at Bader International Study Center in the UK. She also co-runs the Art of Record Production Conferences and is an editor on the Journal on the Art of Record Production and co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Music and Virtuality. Shara's latest book is Virtual Music, Sound, Music, and Image in the Digital Era, and is published by Bloomsbury Academic. Shara, thank you for joining me today. Hello, Bradley. Thank you so much for inviting me and for the opportunity to talk about my book. Of course. this I think this is a fantastic book, but for those uh, listening who may not be familiar, please share with us what your book is about. Sure. So Virtual Music, Sound, Music and Image in the Digital Era was published by Bloomsbury um, Academic last year in April 2021. And my book, Virtual Music, explores the interactive relationship of sound, music, image and its uses in the digital era. And the way I apply the term uses is actually quite ambiguous because in the book, I like to refer to creators such as music composers and more importantly, the listeners as well, um, the audience, the consumers, the fans. And while the term virtual music itself can be very ambiguous and complex to define and understand, just like if you're going to have a conversation on what is popular music or music, we'll be here forever uh, discussing it and having interesting conversations. Um, But yeah, so the same can be applied to virtual music because there are so many areas, ideas, features and debates to consider and contemplate. Uh, For my book, I have really focused on the fascination and innovations surrounding virtual music by investigating artists and creators such as Grace Jones, The Weeknd, Kraftwerk, Mad Villain, Gorillaz and Danger Mouse. And I also look at other forms of virtual uh, music such as audiovisual materials such as video games and soundtracks such as Cuphead and musical styles such as Chip Chip. Yeah, it's a really comprehensive book. Um, so we'll start in the from the beginning. 
In the introduction to your book, you say that the concept and interplay of virtual and digital are complex, but we generally apply these terms freely without justifying their usage. Can you tell me what is the difference between digital and virtual in the context of your book and how do these concepts impact music? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so we've all been used to using these terms separately, but without us realizing in everyday conversation. And from my approach, virtual or virtuality, you know, it's something that you think of, you know, in your mind or some kind of illusion or imagination. And with digital, it's always some kind of medium or some kind of technology or device that helps to put that um, illusion into reality, so to speak. And for the sake of that book, because, uh, you know, I've been there, we've experienced it, we always, you know, play with the terms virtual and digital. You're, as you know, um, throughout the book, I kind of use the terms together, digital, virtual, and I thought it'd be a nice, unique way of applying the term and without having to think, oh, am I using this term correctly? Because people are using virtual when they're discussing digital technology anyway. And we are obviously, because of the pandemic, we are so used to using the term virtual, especially now, you know, when we're doing online stuff like the podcast or education we're we're so used to using virtual when we are relying on digital technology to make this possible yeah that's interesting you say that because one of the earliest chapters when you frame this idea of digital and virtual is by exploring the history of technology and delivering music as a medium uh you know from gramophone to vinyl to mp3 so I want to know how how access to music as either a creator or listener has evolved and expanded over time with this technology. Oh yeah, very much so. Because um, back in the day, when, you know, early science of music technology, yeah, it all comes down to affordability and accessibility. And you know, when you mention um, devices such as gramophone, of course, you you know. If, for the consumer, you know, it wasn't always that easy to have hands-on unless you can, you know, freely afford it. And over the years and so, you know, music technology has really been designed for music industry use and creativity and composition or musicians that can have access to it. And, you know, as time or decades have gone by, slowly but surely, certain music technologies and audio devices have become more affordable even more so today and in the book I I do emphasize on that especially with the likes of using computers or laptops there is so much software out there that's very affordable and hopefully accessible as well you know depending where you're located as long as you've got a decent internet connection as well I find that really important that everyone has some kind of opportunity and access to music making or listening to music so I do believe now you know there's so much choice out there in terms of having access to technology and affordable choices as well and that was a really interesting angle with your book to talk about the accessibility um, of music and music technology and when I think about digital and virtual I do think of computers and synthesizers and those kind of things within like the last you know 20 or 30 years but there's some examples where you bring in full circle the older forms of music and connecting that 
narrative of accessibility and even social change. And when you're discussing experimental music, in your book, you say early experimental music provided the foundations for future music. And in one of the examples you brought up was um, Krautrock, which is, uh, for our listeners out there, Krautrock is a questionable term that British journalists use to market this style of music. It's usually to describe um, rock or rock-centric music coming from Germany. It's an outdated term, but it's there for the you know kind of historical context. But um, you say that this genre was based on postmodernism and surrealism and broke the dominance that the United States and UK had on popular music while also expressing a creative desire to escape Germany's devastation and think toward a brighter future through musical creativity. Share with us, share with us more about the social and musical impact of that in terms of you know what experimental music can do, what experimental technology can do to break down those kind of social constructs and increase a, you know, an accessibility to new thoughts and ideas. Yeah, so with the um, style, like you mentioned, for example, you know, it, it was an expressive way for musicians to express their feelings and their emotions of the after effects, you know, of the war, for example, and to experiment in, um, you know, with their music, which is why um, it might, you know, it may not be pleasing to everybody's ear, you know, it might sound very, no, no, based on noise or very surreal, like you said, you know, the idea of experimenting with everyday sound and sonics and technologies um, you know, the idea of breaking rules and conventions when you, you know, when we apply the term postmodern, postmodernism and, but to maintain, you know, the roots of why they, they explore and experimented with this music in terms of, you know, the haunting side of the history and putting that into action and, you know, while it may not be pleasing to everybody's ear, for those who will appreciate it, you know, they, they will be able to sense and again have that illusion what the musicians and creators are feeling. And, you know, and again, it's almost like an instrumental side of storytelling, right? You know, um, yeah, just through the music alone. And they could pick up all the effects, the emotions, just by hearing the sounds in the music. Uh, yeah, so that's why, yeah, so I, you know, I, for that chapter alone, um, yeah, I, I was very specific in terms of styles and genres. That were all the styles and genres I could have chosen, you know, I wanted to really focus on, you know, electronica, electronic music, and and later on hip hop as well. Um, yeah. So, how did artists like Kraftwerk do that with their music? Oh, just by exploring with instruments, sounds, machines, the obsession with machines as well, you know, and the idea of bringing everyday other technologies into the equation as well, you know, that it, from where they're from in Germany, you know, you know, it's a very industrial, I wanted to hone in on the industrial cities and how they apply that into their music and which shouts out you know where their roots as well you know but at the same time it was groundbreaking in terms when you mentioned oh you know the idea of feeling or being futuristic you know in their music which was really ahead of its time because it was you know it was breaking traditions in terms of music making and creativity by exploring various instruments and what would have been considered as, you know, unusual instruments. I mean, 
machines, technology, you know, which is really part of everyday music now. So, yeah. Absolutely. And with the example of Kraftwerk, you know, knowing their music, they were kind of building this utopian kind of machine-driven future. But there are other examples in that chapter where you talk about the convergence of experimentalism and technology and how those came together to impact the development of other genres. And you mentioned psychedelic, you mentioned dub, you mentioned hip hop and ambient. Talk about this about talk with us about those genres as well, and perhaps some examples on how um, technology and experimentalism fueled a kind of vision of what those genres were supposed to represent. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, so, what the one what I should mention with experimental music through personal experience, you know, it's just like it can be a complex term in itself, like virtual, like popular music and so on. And when I, you know, when I was a music student, um, professors had their own take on experimental music and they never talked about these styles. And, you know, as a creator or composer, you know, every music you hear is based on some kind of experiment of some sort. And I felt it was important to talk about these groups and producers and these styles so for example um with, with dub you know um rightfully so you know it it was it was around about the same time you or it started around the same time when psychedelic rock was evolving and that idea of experimenting with sound effects and technologies in the recording studio. And with dub music alone, it was always always about the drum and bass sound. Most of it was instrumental as well, but the emotions were more important. It was it was politically driven and you could feel that through the music especially with the bass and the way they manipulate for example King Tubby the the way he would manipulate with the sound effects you know that frustration you know without having to hire a singer and scream you know so it was all about feeling the effects and putting you know putting your creative thoughts through experimenting um, in the recording studio and the use of sound effects. So that's with dub, for example. Um, yeah, and the other styles that I mentioned, such as hip-hop as well, of course, through samples as well, you know, totally different mood. But, um, for example, you know, using existing sources from other texts or other mediums can bring out new meaning in a new piece of music. So that's when you get that a lot when when you look at hip hop music. So I use Mad Villain as an example, how they managed to transform, um, you know, Brazilian music into a haunting sound, you know, a nice holiday feel, laid back sound, but into a totally different context, just through samples alone and through lyrics as well, which I find really, really interesting. Okay. Yeah, and what I deliberately did at the end of the chapter, I used a group, British group, and producer Bomb the Bass and Tim Simonon, um, that uh, to demonstrate electronica. But what's interesting about that track, it displays all the different styles that I mentioned in the um, chapter. So you know, a bit of ambient, a bit of dub, and you know, electronic, and so on. And it's quite progressive as well. You know, it, it does progress. It does. You know, so you get 
a nice exploration of the different styles that I mentioned in that chapter. So I thought that was a nice round off of it. And, you know, and again, the emphasis is on the bass and the drums as well. So I thought that was interesting to bring that in and just to demonstrate, look, this is a nice example of experimental music of that futuristic sound and the experimenting um, with music technology as well, that futuristic sound, yeah. You t- so in your book and even during this interview, you talked about bringing different styles, a lot of differences, and it brings to mind a concept you discuss in your book uh, of something that Brian Eno calls variety. And it's about exploring the foundations and impressions of experimental music and how this leads to unpredictable but discoverable new kinds of composition. Can you walk us through what what Eno means by this concept of variety and how it contributes to the creation of experimental music? Yeah, so it's, you know, anything goes, basically. Anything goes surreal, picking up everyday sounds, sonic noise, Random, even that's totally experimental as well. Ran- making random decisions, choices, p- applying mood. Um, that I is very postmodern. That idea of breaking breaking rules and convention, anything goes. Having that idea of variety or sounds in the music. And one and of, in that book, I you know the the um, track that I used, you know. It was like a happy accident for Brian Eno that he created um, that composition because he wasn't unwell at the time and he really, you know, wanted to listen to a piece of music. But he was, when he tried to listen to the piece of music, he was absorbing everything, the atmosphere, the sounds, the birds singing, and you know, and he thought, okay, this is this is really interesting. You know, you could do something with this from from a compositional stance right so yeah and this obviously brought out a new way of composing music you know just rather than having tuneful melodies just again that word experimenting with everyday sounds and technology and putting things and sounds into reality really so yeah yeah in your book, you say in the digital virtual era, we are constantly reminded of the past due to recycled sounds that are presented in the music, and that music is constantly being experimented with, with sounds that are manipulated via technology and everyday sonics. And in this chapter, you discuss, as an example to illustrate this concept, is the Grey Album. What is the Grey Album, and how was it developed, and what was its impact on music industry and culture in, the, in regards to virtual and digital music? So the Grey Album is a very complex uh, case study, but very exciting as well, which did cause a divide in the music industry and disruption in the music industry. So the Grey Album came about in the mashup era around 2004, where mashup culture was really becoming hot and the term remixology in music was really becoming trendy thanks to... um, internet and peer-to-peer and downloading illegal downloading music as well it was that era you know when everyone was downloading mp3s illegally and so on so with the great album which was you know remixed by um danger mouse uh brian burton uh in 2003 the hip-hop artist uh jc released what was known as his final album which it wasn't it, the black album 
and as a you know as a present to his fans he released an acapella version um and basically said do what you want with it okay you know because uh, it because it was a mashup you know so he invited them to do a mashup and D- danger mouse remixed it with the beatles what was known as the white white album self-titled album beatles but it was famously known as the white album and bearing in mind the time frame 2004 i guess if you hear it now you know you wouldn't think much of it but back then when technology was starting to evolved very fast this is quite unique because who would have thought remixing the Beatles and JC you know totally different styles totally different eras and of course it was gonna upset hardcore fans mainly from the Beatles side um yeah so so around that time it was quite unique and brave or danger mouse to do that and he did argue it was an experiment only okay so um but of but you know, naturally, when people did get their hands on it, you know, it, it somehow landed in the ether in cyberspace and people started downloading it and were actually praising it. And so, wow, picture this, Beatles and JC performing together, making music together, you know, who would have thought it? All thanks to digital technology, um, Danger Mouse made it possible by using his laptop, you know, very simple setup, very simple um, software, Sonic Acid software he used. Um, but, you know, and this made it possible to remix and to bring, a, if you like, a futuristic sound, uh, you know, that uh, my obsession and of bringing the past into the present, you know, who would have thought it, you know, mixing the past and present, that sounds futuristic. But, yeah, there was a bit of a downside to that um because even though danger mouse did argue it was an experiment he wasn't intending to sell it or whatnot he, he couldn't anyway if he wanted to he didn't you know he he didn't have permission to use the sound recordings of the beatles album which of course that kind of upset the label um emi so he, he, danger mouse and the fans were actually confronted with his cease and desist letter and danger mouse obeyed but the fans and admirers of the great album wanted to show look this is amazing people need to hear this so they held a one-day cyber protest about it and that got even more global attention because when i first found out about it i found it out in one of the national um tv news over here in england because they were saying this there's going to be this protest you know everyone's going to download you know and poor danger mouse had nothing to do with it but you know it, it but you know the fans got threatened because it to, to participate in the protest you download it upload it on your blog and encourage more people to download it and just spread the word and spread you know this is this is great this is what you can do with creativity right so um yeah um you know there's so many downloads it, you know it did very very well and as I said in the book, you know, there was a bit of a flaw in one of the copyright laws, which meant EMI could not sue in the States anyway. That was only in the States, but there wasn't a bit of, there was no one complained over here. Um, but yeah, but obviously the publishers, um, some of the publishers that are not affiliated with directly with the Beatles, um, um, they did try to sue the fans in other means and forms, but they, they, 
didn't because it would have been such a complex case. And even if Danger Mouse did want to um, obtain permission, you know, there's so many channels to go through. It would have been a headache for him. (laughs) You know, it just wouldn't be worth it. The only way he could afford the situation and if he did want to um, release it, officially he would he would have to play cover versions or something you know so yeah but the aftermath of that was here we are in 2022 you know this is a we are still talking about it and it's such a fascinating album because it is from a creative point of view it is very very great um to listen to but from a legal side of things you know it's good if you want to learn more about music copyright, okay, what could have been, you know, if if he did get sued, you know, because it is such a complex case if this did go to court because there's so many people involved. And this could have ruined Danger Mouse's career. It could have because he was only an amateur producer at the time, um, you know, but he is a well much demanded music producer today so you know it really helped him and you know, but in a way it did that particular album did disrupt the industry because yeah he used music without permission okay yeah it got uploaded on peer-to-peer on the internet you know because we were, we were in that time you know the likes of Napster and all that you know it's when you mentioned earlier accessibility you know people having access to music you know which which should be seen as a positive thing i know there's two sides you know because it encouraged the listeners to listen to all kinds of music but yeah of course it's the publishers the songwriters artists who are going to lose out Uh, and obviously we are aware for those who will kick up a fuss such as emi we will know about it but yeah it it wasn't it did mark a turning point in terms of music production and having access to music. But at the same time, it also gave uh, um, upcoming producers and creators the opportunity and say, look, oh, they can, if they can do this, I can do this as well because I've got the laptop, I can afford the software and so on. So, you know, it, it has opened a big <laughs> can of worms, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So I remember this era with Napster and and when peer-to-peer downloading was making, you know, its scene. I had LimeWire and I know you saw news all the time about the recording industries suing teenagers and other people for huge vast amounts of money, right? And and this is this is nothing new. Whenever there's new technology, the industry is always concerned about how does it get its share. I mean, several decades before when VHS tapes came into existence, you know, the industries thought that that was going to kill cinema because people could just constantly tape off their TV. So, I I don't I'm never really concerned about how the industry is always going to react to things. So my question for you is: with the rise of peer-to-peer sharing and examples like the Gray Album. How did that influence creativity? How did that influence people who are making music at home without, you know, access to industry connections or recording studios? What was the impact of the album on that? Yeah, so it was very, very positive. Um, in terms of creativity, it did inspire upcoming, you know, or other producers or even students to mash up or remix existing musical sources out there 
and to instantly share with their friends or upload on YouTube or what have you. So it was the idea of distributing and consuming music freely uh, without having to have a middle person or or gatekeeper or, or, or begging on the industry door, you know, please listen to my music. So, it, it, you know, it kind of op- open opportunity and showed that, you know, anyone can do this, anyone can have a go. It's just happened that, you know, bearing in mind the time frame, Danger Mouse used the daring group at the time, you know, um, but at the same time, he did argue that it, it, the Beatles are one of his favourite groups. And, you know, even Sir Mac- Paul McCartney said he loves the album. So, you know, but yeah, so in terms of that, yes, it opened more opportunity for people to experiment with music and to make music. And in some cases, perhaps without officially learning how to play an instrument, you know, especially because obviously I argue that the laptop, the computer, it should be considered as a musical instrument, you know, depending on the software, you, you know, because of the software you have. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's definitely a time where, you know, devices, instruments are definitely evolving and becoming more digital and opportunities for people to experiment and explore and use the instrument as their own what in case what danger mouse did so I, yeah so i think it de- definitely it did inspire especially the young to explore and especially now you know people are remixing their favorite tracks for for fun <laughs> okay so yeah so definitely it gives them the opportunity You say in your book, we may think that in the current digital age, creators in the music industry, in particular performers, are gaining greater control over their artistry, but that manufacturing artists into disposable material is still the norm within the industry. When I read that, I think of some classic examples like the Monkees, the Archies, or even Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, the Sex Pistols. Though they are older bands, the much more established bands, how has technology changed in recent years in order for the music industry to still create manufactured artists? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, different approaches to that. Um, yeah, so for example, some of the bands you mentioned, you know, all behind the scenes, you know, yeah, very, very manufactured. But also dabbling with technology, especially with likes of the Alvin and Chipmunks. Um, and now... Um, the industry are obviously thinking ahead with their feet, you know, because there's so much going on out there. People, independent, you know, upcoming musicians are DIY, they're doing it themselves and having gained control of their artistry and music and just uploading and sharing, especially on TikTok and gaining, you know, um, exposure through there. So, and so, yeah, so obviously the music industry are really again experimenting and finding different ways or even different new ways of marketing um, groups you know unique ways or just trying you know and observing or keeping an eye on what's going on out there and trying to hone in on that because you know we have, we've heard that maybe not so much recently but we are hearing that you know the argument is the industry in decline, you know, because of peer to peer, or you know, or because even of legal down downloading and piracy. Um, of course, the pandemic as well, you know. But 
we are, we are, you know, still, I believe it's still a very much thriving commercial industry. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. You know, they do make these threats. For example, the mashup culture, um, when that was very hot in the 2004, um, EMI were the first album after the incident, they were the, they were the first label to bring out a mashup <laughs> album. So, okay, can't beat them, join them kind of thing. Um, but yeah, but in, but in terms of, yeah, I mean, in terms of manufactured artists, we, we are definitely, we are being more exposed to it if we are observing from an obs- consumer. You know, we are seeing them manufactured in front of our eyes and dropped in front of our eyes as well. Um, and for those who are successful, they're really utilising the social media, that idea, you know, um, having that direct or giving that illusion of a direct um, connection with the fans and consumer. So that is pretty much more evident now. Um, the fans and consumers kind of appear to have um, a, a relationship, if you like, what's well, a virtual relationship with, with that famous artist or whatnot. But really, is it really? Or is it being controlled by the label? You know, so in, in, especially when you read social media posts by famous artists, you, you, you get that impression, oh, it's maybe Taylor Swift. Or, oh, she, she wrote this today on Instagram. But really, who is it really her kind of thing? So, yeah, so, you know, the industries definitely still have a sense of control in that sense. Alongside talking about manufactured artists, you also explore concepts in your book like identity and authenticity. And this is something that's always interesting to me because there's a lot of purists out there when it comes to music who say like, well, it's got to be real people in a room playing real music, or they might say how they present themselves on stage or on an album cover is inauthentic that to me is just so lacking in imagination. And you talk about some great examples in your book, such as um, David Bowie, who is a personal hero of mine. And also there's Madonna. And you mentioned Grace Jones, who very famously on her nightclubbing album says, feeling like a woman, looking like a man. So um, there's examples where people are being authentic to themselves as how they present themselves and maintaining a certain identity. But I want to know how you define these concepts of identity and authenticity in your book and how do they relate? Yeah, so identity and authenticity are always interesting um, terms to use when when we are looking at popular music artists and musicians. And yes, there is definitely an interplay with those terms as well. And what's interesting... um, identity we do think of the persona of the artist maybe on stage or even in the recording studio as well okay so you know how are they presenting themselves vocally or in the music okay all through their lyrics and then of course physically it'll be in the music video or some kind of performance and um and with the likes of um, David Bowie and Madonna, um, there are two perfect examples uh, because, you know, up to this day, regardless of age or time frame, we are aware of these magnificent artists um, and they have successfully um, explored their artistry, their identities as well for every album, for every performance. And yes, I, I did not really focus much on them, but I could not 
avoid talking about them because they did lay the foundations of that chapter and they have been documented so many times right so but what was really fascinating about these two artists they are very very postmodern, and yeah you can argue are they really authentic because when we see different personas obviously basing it in it on other texts or other sources but it's the way they project that okay it's the way they, they portray that in their performance and they do it very well and experiment with their identity as well which makes it very much authentic and for that chapter i did look oh i did look up grace jones because i you know i'm very passionate of you know of her work and her as well and what was really interesting you know as you mentioned you know she she explores her gender sexuality her identity even though she may she might have a particular identity that we may all be aware of you know the suits the short hair and whatnot it's the way how she displays that on stage in her photo shoots her acting even you know her behavior it's the way she pulls that off all the time and you know what we are seeing we just we are just witnessing her persona her identity we're not really bothered what she's like in real life because she's very mysterious and, you know, very iconic, you know. So, you know, and timeless, ageless, if you like, because, you know, here we are. Yeah, you know, we are, there's this, there is this fascination about her, yeah. And, um, and in that book, I talk about a video that's perhaps really unexpected because um, you know I could have chosen any song any of the fa- famous songs but this song that I chose um, Love You To Life I argue you know this is where she actually lets her guard down <laughs> you know you might see the emotional side of her but do we <laughs> okay you know and she's still teasing us but we do see the emotional side of her and you and if you haven't heard of Grace Jones start with this video because Really, you also see different, even though she's naked, <laughs> you do see different sides of Grace Jones. You know, she does her Grace Jones look. You see the emotional side of her. and uh, You see her as a ghost even, okay, or, um, or a robot even. It's how she controls it with her body. Not only that, in this case, when I said she lets down her guard, because usually um, she's in control of her performances, in this case, she's in, she's controlled by digital lighting effects and different colours, and I think that is really really fascinating. So yeah, so you, you do see her in a different light in a virtual sense. And with the weekend, he I think he's definitely one to watch because he also uh, displays his love for David Bowie, and he's still very young. And every album, every performance, he's experimenting with his identity and his music as well in terms of style and genre um and you know and he's doing okay you know he's doing really well in with that so i think it'd be really really interesting to see how he evolve over the next few decades or so you discuss how technology can help a musician regardless of experience achieve success without being tied up to the major music industry, and it's largely due to the role that the internet plays in the distribution and consumption of music. How does musical identity play a role in an artist achieving success for themselves? Yeah, so again, it's 
it's all they can have a choice how they want to do it okay they might not they might not want to show themselves they might want to be avatars or they might be animated so um or maybe do a mashup video of some sort and just make sure their music is heard somehow so in a way you know um people who do want to be recognized for their music but feel that pressure you know do i really have to reveal myself you know reveal my true identity no they don't have to this is where virtuality can come into play they could be whoever they want to be right um so they can disguise themselves in some form or you know or collaborate um with someone okay um but yeah or, or just tease the audience you know go in disguise or tease the audience um i mean for example with many for example um it's not it's, it's not a new thing really because you hear you know like with electronic or dance music we're not really aware of the dj until you see them live really so or even you don't they don't unless they're a big superstar dj you don't you don't really see them in music videos really so you know so it's that idea um you know making sure if, if you might want to mention daft punk as well um you know it's it's all about the music you know and make sure the music is being heard but obviously now with the likes of tiktok and so you know and the way instagram has evolved it is it has got to the stage where it especially for the young um, and and that word choices, it has come to the stage where it might be challenging to stay hooked onto one particular song because the instant is scrolling and whatnot. Okay, so yeah, so definitely the way people are consuming music has definitely changed. So I think that might add a bit more pressure to upcoming artists because whatever they produce, it has to really reach out, you know, if they really want to, be acknowledged and be recognised for the music. It's really got to grab the attention of the of the consumers, the listeners, audience out there. It's interesting you mentioned music videos, and we're discussing how the internet changes how people consume music. And for like the last forty years, you know, traditional visual mediums for music have largely been animation, film, and music video. And I think about artists who started with those mediums and later adopted a more digital presence, groups like Gorillaz, who started with animated music videos in the early 2000s, but are now fully embracing virtual worlds and performances. So I, I wanted to get an understanding of um, how these traditional mediums evolved with the onset of digital and virtual performances and how we get things like VR and immersive digital concert experiences. Yeah, so definitely, you know, that has really took over in this century, right? So, and thanks to technology, it is still evolving. Um, yeah, so like you mentioned, the gorillas, it's just a purely animation <laughs> group, okay? Without going to the story, the concept of it yet. Um, but yeah, but as time evolves, as you mentioned, we witness in the videos, VR, okay, even AR, human form with virtual form, you know, lots of collaboration and 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 i think as well you know and it, it, again it comes down to choice um and thanks to the pandemic we do have more options and how we want to watch a concert okay is it is it going to be live streamed on youtube for free you know um do we do we want to go to a physical concert anymore 
or for or what about for those who don't want it who are not old enough to go to a concert you know this is where Fortnite comes into it you know i think that's been a bit of a game changer with video games as well um in terms of live performances because it has reached out to other areas other mediums in terms of where we experience live performances and um you know so we have definitely have more choices now on how we want to consume live music um and of course you know even though it's been experimented with already um in terms of holograms or you know performing live with dead artists for example even though that has been done in the past that's nothing new but we are perhaps going to reach that stage where technology will make it right and it will make it even more popular and yeah which may bring out you know which which will obviously it will bring out questions and debate and perhaps the divide but of course it's going to be an audience out there it's going to love it right but i think really live performances definitely more choices and more options now on how we want to view live performances. So when we talk about creating virtual concert experiences and utilizing the internet, the whole purpose is to get music out there to more listeners, to connect with more people. Cause that's what an artist ultimately wants is for mm-hmm. people to listen to their music. And this brings, you know, you know, this brings into discussion a lot of interesting topics such as accessibility. You know, there's a lot of people who either due to the pandemic or another kind of disability are unable to enjoy concerts in the same way. Um, there's also the ability for people just through internet access to hear sounds from places far away that otherwise they would never have access to. So I want to get a sense of how virtual and digital spaces allow for these new audiences to come on board and what is the effect of that yes so yeah so in the book i do address that the different ways of consuming or better term experiencing music and of course especially now because obviously i wrote this book before the pandemic um but yeah but as we know there's so many choices now in terms of experiencing and watching performances and what's interesting you know is yeah, there are, of course, for whatever reason, you know, if, if people are attending virtually, they may not have that social um, experience, but they get to hear their favourite artists' music, gain a sense of how they, you know, gain a virtual experience of attending a live concert in their own personal space. So, yeah, so which is great because, obviously, you know, um for whatever reason, like you mentioned, maybe it could be a disability, or they could be feeling anxious, you know. Uh, but they still want to. They still want to experience live music. This, you know, they they have that choice, and I feel that it's really important now, especially with the internet and virtual performances. It's very important that makes this really possible. And yeah, the social effect might not be evident, but you know, it depends. You might have a few friends around. But um, it does give you that unique experience and a new opportunity in experiencing music as well. And I do give various examples, various ways in that book. You know, there are various ways now, whether it's a live stream on YouTube, you know, maybe you couldn't afford to go to the concert, okay? But thankfully, some, you know, there's a live stream of it, so you don't miss out. Or you, or you might 
stay in touch with your friend who's at a concert and they you know sending you whatsapp or quick footages you know it kind of gives you that other kind of virtual experience of being there without actually being there or this uh, or you could attend post concerts um like with apps such as Melody VR, where you you do pay um, to have access to past performances, but you might have that novelty effect as well. The more you know, depending how much you pay. Uh, so, for example, you might want to jump on stage with Elton John or go on the plane with Paul McCartney. So there are incentives now, um, even though of course it's not real, but um, it does give you that nice entertainment that experience of or of another way of experiencing your favorite artist's music and a personal intimate experience as well so we talked about ways in which digital and virtual music has opened up a lot of barriers and it's primarily due to the internet and the internet does connect people with all kinds of ideas and other resources but I want to understand the flip side of that and you know, other issues in terms of accessibility, such as government restrictions to mm. the internet technology. Yeah. So what are some of the current ongoing challenges uh, that are facing the digital and virtual spaces of music? Yeah, so obviously, um, you know, of course, there are, it's not obviously free for all <laughs> globally. Um, yeah, of course, there are some nations or countries that might have a crackdowns on having access to music for whatever reason okay and of course that that limits the consumer the user's experience of music and which is really really difficult and other and of course in having a decent access to internet as well um yeah and that, that idea of that being controlled again so yeah so it's not really free for all and you know it does bring challenges in that and that may it may encourage um other ways in accessing music which is may not be considered as you know legal okay and again that might result in more consequences as well so yeah there's all that um to think about as well and yeah it is it, it is you know it's misfortunate that is happening as well especially for upcoming creators who may feel restricted you know are better not talk about certain subjects or whatnot in case i'll be censored of you know and so on so yeah i mean there is all that to consider as well and not only that yeah even though we all like to think music is a very positive experience anyway whether it's socially or even culturally or even in the religious sense you know yes we do have the negative side of things as well um, or backlash if you like uh, negative responses which can especially now the internet you know you know, people are quick to share their views or, you know, their dislikes, if you like, towards personally towards certain artists or certain um, music. So, yeah, we are in that era where, you know, we do have to be considerate and think of the fuller picture in terms of, you know, how, how do we perceive music and what does this mean for the musician, creator, listener and audience? and consumer as well. When we talk about ways in which there might be a restrictive element for people to make or consume music, money is money and industry tend to be the biggest factors. 
and you discuss in your book how a lot of music creators have little to no control of their artistry and identity in the music industry, yet internet technology has fostered a continually expanding DIY culture. How has this DIY culture grown, and how has the music industry adapted to handle the monetary elements of that? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we are in the era now. Uh, going back to the term accessibility and affordability. Yeah, people do have the opportunity to create music and have control to begin with, if you like, <laughs> of their music in the hope to be discovered, acknowledged, and recognised, and for their music to be shared. Um, yeah. So and. And uh, yeah, the, um, uh, the industry are monitoring this, you know, because that, it's that idea of, of missing out on the next big thing, the idea of not, rec- you know, not signing up that artist, you know, it's that competition, right? Uh, yeah, so it, it has made it very, very competitive. I mean, you know, we use, I use uh, Lil Nas X, for example, you know, a perfect example of so DIY, He's very young, but he, he knew what he was doing you know very clever DIY independent very clever marketing tactic he used there with the help of Twitter and they just left it to the fans <laughs> to get on with it and then he boom before you know it he was snapped up by a major label so definitely we are on that there's many ways of approaching this because yeah the fans the audience are very much interactive they're very much involved now they are doing the free promotion for the artists if you like which is great and of course uh, you know um with the industry once they're caught on with that they tend to get the fans involved even more in terms of marketing you know maybe with some perks but with the terms of utilizing social media so social media is really you know it helped with the marketing sense of it so and i think the music industry have really honed in on the audience as well uh, yeah especially in terms of using this social media so um but in all honesty you know i don't think the music industry have that much to worry about because you know they're still having success. They're still finding ways of marketing or discovering artists, and that you know, of course, it's the performances as well. You know, live performances have made have made a major comeback. Festivals are coming back. You know, so all the money is, is with that, really. So you know, and as we know, it's not cheap <laughs> to go to a live performance these days. And of course, merchandise, even you know, so there's billions of ways of you know that the industry are still having their hands on artists or discovering artists as well. But what ha- what has made a big difference is really getting the audience involved somehow, um, especially in terms of including social media practices as well. It's interesting you bring up social media because you explore social media very uh, in-depth in terms of allowing opportunities for artists to connect with fans and fans to connect with artists. And you proceed going into the topic of social media by discussing some other examples in history where artists have embraced computer and internet technology, whether it's Bowie in the 90s with his jump CD-ROM or apps created by Bjork, Massive Attack, Radiohead. But you discuss a lot about the concept of going viral, virality in relation to social media. And this is where information is shared simultaneously over a short period of time across social networks. And some examples of this have been Drake's Hotline Bling, Harlem Shake, and even the um, death of David Bowie as a 
kind of act of grievance and mourning on social media. You brought up Little Nas X, who you say is probably the most prominent example of music going viral. Tell us a little bit about his story, what happened, and, and how that came to be. Yeah, so the way he utilised um, social media, uh, as a young, he's still very young, and you know, uh, of course, he's in the, that generation, <laughs> the social media generation. Yeah, so when he created um, um, Old Town Road, um, he the way he promoted it was just a sing- simple tweet on Twitter. Uh, he used a meme and of a cowboy, uh, you know a cowboy of a meme like a funny meme and 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 the tweet was simple it just said country music is evolving and you hear a bit of his song in the background and that just that alone what's that about okay it went viral okay and then when you hear the music you think oh my goodness country music a bit of trap a bit of hip-hop what's going on okay of course you know that was unique okay but Daring as well because it's country music and um and of course once that caught on that tweet it got in it got in the hands of TikTokers and there's you know they came up with the Yeehaw challenge which obviously went viral in its own but they used Lil Nas X as the soundtrack and it became people more intrigued about the music and once and, and obviously later on we found out oh it's Lil Nas X now. You know, Old Town Road, um, yeah, and then and as we know, as we know it, when he got snapped up by the label, that's when he collaborated with Billy Ray Cyrus, and that's when it went number one <laughs> forever <laughs> in the charts. So yeah, so it, uh, that is to me that is great way of getting into the industry, but a unique way of being discovered as well just by a single tweet and a meme that just went viral so yeah very very clever i think he's i think he's very clever in terms of marketing himself you know so yeah and exciting as well yeah he's very clever in terms of just kind of driving where music is going to be aesthetically and how we consume it so I wanted to uh, talk with you about some recent signals as to where music is going and what music in the future is going to be like. And in recent years, we've seen examples of where the music industry is going in terms of things like hologram performances, those hologram performances by Tupac and Whitney Houston, or even artificial intelligence creating new music. There is a um, There was like some art project last year where a, a team had created a four-track EP of artists who had died due to drug and alcohol addiction and created new music just through artificial intelligence. And they and they created new songs mimicking Amy Winehouse, Nirvana, uh, The Doors, and Jimi Hendrix. And I want to get a sense um, from you as an expert in digital and virtual music, where do you see the future of music going with this? Yeah, um, where I see it, um, I like to say there's, there's going to be even more opportunity and accessibility to music. But yeah, but when you mention AI, that does, I have to admit, that does frighten me a bit as a musician and an expert or even as, as an educator, even, you know, um, the idea, you know, I'm, 
you know, I've had this conversation with students, do, will we have a job in the future kind of thing, you know, and it just goes to show with the examples that you just mentioned, there are met various ways in applying AI, right? So, you know, the idea of just creating music or not, or you're not creating music, so to speak, you know, and just taking control again, you know, industry might love that okay because it's going to obviously they're going to say okay we don't need any more session musicians or or songwriters anymore you know and they and they will find a way unfortunately well don't say unfortunately um they might they might find a way of making it very very successful and it may catch on um but yeah but for me personally uh yeah it does concern me a bit it, it's it's interesting it's exciting and i like to see how it will evolve but at the same time i i still you know i still there's there's still a place for upcoming creators and musicians right and and to experiment with music and to bring out new genres and styles you know i think I think it just goes to show music is very much evolving. In terms of hologram performances, yeah, as we know, you know, it has been tried and tested. It has failed a lot of times, but it just has been one-off performances. But I think the way technology is evolving, hologram performances, yeah, that could be another way of experiencing live music. The idea, I, I did not go into it completely in the book, but the idea of resurrecting dead artists, yeah. For me personally, um, I'm not too sure how I feel about that. Um, it does sound a bit weird, but at the same time, I do appreciate the technology. I mean, in fact, it does scare me, you know, if I, you know, if I was forced to watch a uh, show that would freak me out personally but um but it could be educational as well you know and it, and it, it brings a different experience of, exp- of of listening and watching a live performance so that you should be yeah it should be acknowledged and and it's another way of experimenting with music Shara, this has been a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me today. Your book was excellent. Um, really fantastic. Oh, thank you so much, Bradley. I'm really pleased to hear that. And thank you so much for the opportunity. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Shara Rambaran. Her book is Virtual Music, Sound, Music, and Image in the Digital Era and is published by Bloomsbury Academic. 